Now, turning in our, our Bibles, or we'll see it on the screen, uh, Psalm number 22. Psalm uh, 22. <clears throat> one of my boyhood memories, one of the highlights of my boyhood memories, sorry for this personal anecdote here, was visiting my uncle in the north of Scotland. He was an estate manager and on special occasions took his nephews out on the moor hunting deer. It was a thrilling experience. Lying still in the heather in the early morning or in the late evening, waiting and watching for the deer to arrive on the lower grounds and move into the precise position for him, who was quite the marksman, to get a clear shot The title of this famous psalm, one of the most famous and beloved of all psalms, and rightly so, as we've already said, describes the event of deer hunting. The title is The Doe of the Dawn. The title mentions the most common time that deer were hunted in the time that the psalm was written around 1000 BC, the dawn, the morning. The early morning when the deer wakened and drunk from a stream, it was then that the hunter struck. Deer hunting then was a most brutal affair, more akin to our fox hunting today, with one deer being singled out from the pack by the hunters who directed their dogs to chase it. The deer was terrified, breathless, nervous, Panicking, desperate, as it ran for its life, chased by the hunters and their dogs. And it's this image, this picture, this metaphor, this scenario that the title of this psalm chooses to describe the subject of this brilliant psalm. He is like the deer in the morning been aggressively hunted by his enemies. The psalm was written by King David around 1000 BC and captures an insight into his experience of flight from Saul in the wilderness of Judea. He lived in caves, hidden forests, journeyed through hills and valleys in that wilderness, pursued by his jealous, spiteful, deranged king and father-in-law, Saul. This psalm captures his agony, his loneliness, and his despair, like a deer hunted in the morning. But while rooted in that experience of David, the psalm transcends his experience to describe and predict for us the experience of our Lord Jesus, his Lord and Saviour, and king. David, guided by the Spirit to pen these words, and perhaps as he wrote them, and he and others in the church read over them, perhaps they wondered who the psalm was ultimately and fully describing. For the details of this psalm transcend the experience of David as rivers in flood break their banks. We're left in no doubt about who this psalm fully and ultimately speaks of because on the cross Jesus quoted the first 
and the last verses of this psalm. And many think that he thought of this psalm throughout his suffering. For he considered that this psalm predicted and articulated his experience. And as we reflect just on this point for a moment, it confirms to us the inspiration of Scripture. This psalm could only have been given to the church and the world by God, who knows the future, written 1,000 years before the events took place in the life of Jesus, and with such detailed predictions, and so many of those detailed predictions, all of this shows to us that this psalm, as all of the Bible is, is the very word of God. Our forecasters can hardly get the weather forecast right for a week ahead, even a day ahead. Governments are concerned today about what the future of AI will be. But they cannot predict that future. They cannot foresee it. So we're to accept once again, the Bible is God's word. To believe its promises. To obey its rules. To listen to its teachings more than the teachings of other faiths or rather than the teachings of other faiths. Popular philosophers, current scientists. The psalm is divided into two parts. The key change comes in verse 21b. You have rescued me. From then on the psalmist praises God. Till then he's praying and pleading with God from a very low place of suffering. We think this morning of verses 1 to 10. The sources of Jesus' inner suffering. This opening part of the psalm then in verses 1 to 10. The focus is on that internal suffering of Jesus. The mental battles, the frustrations that he experienced in his suffering. And this is one of the torments of any sufferer as we well know the torment of our mind, the agony of our thoughts. The book of Job, with its prolonged and endless cycle of debate, reveal many of the mental frustrations experienced by sufferers. And one of the ministries which we are called to provide for sufferers is to keep their heads in the right place. We encourage them to stay positive, to keep trusting in God, to have hope. And so experience something of God's peace in the turmoil of their minds. But many times the sufferer and we have been full of questions, frustrations, mental battles. We often just have to listen in such times to those who are experiencing such things. And here we are given an insight into the supreme sufferer, into the battles of his heart and of his mind as he gives his life for his people. And there are three lines of thought which cause him dolor in his death and crucifixion. Firstly, the example of his ancestors. Secondly, the ethics of his mockers. And thirdly, the experience 
of his life. Firstly, in verses 1 to 5 of Psalm 22, the example of his ancestors. The first cause of frustration for Jesus in his suffering is the experience of deliverance which his ancestors have had. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus contrasts his experience of suffering with the experience of others who have trusted in God and been delivered. His experience is described in the opening of the psalm. The experience of others is described in verse 4 and 5. Jesus reasons and battles and wrestles with this idea that others trusted in God. They prayed to God in their suffering and God delivered and rescued them. You could be thinking of Joseph, delivered from prison. Of David, rescued from the ferocity of Goliath. Of Daniel, saved from the lions in the den. Of Jonah, recovered from the belly of a fish. There were people who trusted in God in their suffering and need, and they were delivered. He is trusting in God. But he is not delivered. He describes his experience in verse 1 and 2. Very different to what happened to them. He feels forsaken by God. The sense of the love of God being withheld from him. He is praying to God. Seeking God. Longing for God. But he is finding no rest in the presence of God or deliverance. From his suffering. What a stark contrast this is between his experience of trust in God and suffering and their experience of trust in God and suffering. Perhaps he gives an insight into his frustration in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man. This is how he feels. In this place of unanswered prayer and suffering. They were men. Jonah and David and Joseph and Daniel. They were men. But I am a worm. And not a man. The faith and trust of Jesus was no vague thing. Verse 3. Many claim to have faith in God. Especially in a time of crisis. But it's foggy. It's vague. It's temporary, it's shallow, it's brief. But Jesus clearly defines his trust and the object of his trust in verse 3. His trust is in God who is holy and God who is worshipped by his people. He is holy, perfect, sinless, upright in all of his actions and dealings. So perfect that he is worshipped and praised and exalted and loved by all his people enthroned on the praises of Israel. And these aspects of God have compelled Jesus, have encouraged Jesus to trust in him and to pray to him and to hope for deliverance. But this holy and worshipped God seems to be inactive, unresponsive. Far off at this moment of suffering in Jesus' life. Appears to be failing him who is trusting in him. Something he didn't do to many other sufferers who trusted in him. So here's the first line 
of frustration and torment in the mind of Christ, the experience of other, the example of others, they trusted and were delivered. But I'm trusting and still suffering. That's not fair. Our words that we've used from children and older people still use them. Someone gets a lolly and you didn't get a lolly. Someone gets off from speeding down the, down the motorway and you get a speeding fine and you grumble. That's not fair. Then our suffering Christian life, we've all said it. We've been here. We pray to God for something, to the holy God, to the worship God of his people. And he's not given us what we asked for, though he's given it to others. And like Jesus, we've cried out in verse number two, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. As we think of this, and this line of frustration in the heart of Jesus, that there's two lessons on the surface of this forest, aren't there? And, and I'm sure you've seen them. One is that there's no right or wrong experience of suffering and deliverance in this life. Whether we suffer and are not delivered or whether we suffer and are delivered in this life, there's no right or wrong experience. Jesus experienced suffering and no deliverance before his death. Others he can think of did experience deliverance before their death. His prayer for deliverance was heard. And our prayer for deliverance will also be heard. Maybe not in this life, but it will be heard. At the resurrection of Jesus, his prayer was for deliverance was answered in a glorious and mighty way. And this may be the case for us. That cancer, that depression, that poverty which torments you, and about which you and your family and your church pray to God for deliverance from. The change might never happen. In your life. And it doesn't mean that your prayer for deliverance has not been heard. Like Jesus, the deliverance will come after death. A second lesson here is that God has reasons for our sufferings in this life. We know and rejoice as we spoke to the children of the reason that God had for the suffering of Jesus. He is forsaken here that we might never be forsaken. He suffers that we will never suffer the judgment of God that we deserve on our sin. There is a clear reason for the suffering of Jesus then and there is a clear reason in the mind of God for all the sufferings of his people. Every pang Jesus felt, every tear he shed, every stab of pain he suffered was for our redemption. And so every pain we feel, every type of suffering we, in, we experience, however dark, however deep the wound might be, God has a purpose, a reason. Secondly, the ethics of his mockers, verses 6 to 8. Another line of thought which accentuated the sufferings of Jesus was the mockery of the crowds. 
Their behavior questioned his claims and rejected his authority. And this added to the inner suffering and torment of Jesus. We know this. When others don't believe us. When others accuse us of of, of, of false claims. When others reject perhaps the authority we have. They ridicule us. They mock us. They verbally abuse us. Sometimes hurts more than any physical pain. They're like cruel, the cruel words are like hooks that get inside of us and we can't extract them. They're like arrows that stick into our hearts and we can't break them off. And here is Jesus in verses 68. Another internal torment is that this wave after wave of verbal abuse that comes to him. There's no spear poking him here. There's no nails being pressed into his body here. It's this mental battle and oppression that he's laboring under. Verse 6, the people are religious leaders. The ones who are mocking him. And the two aspects of their mockery are noted. One is their body language and the other is their their, their verbal abuse. Verse 7, they make mouths at me. With their lips, the cut of their jaw, the bearing of their teeth, the protruding of their tongue, the insult and ridicule, the crucified Jesus. With their heads, they wag, yes or no, yes. You're experiencing the suffering that you deserve. No, you're not the one whom you claim to be or you wouldn't be crucified. But though they jested, they spoke the truth. In a roundabout type of way. He trusts in God they say. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. They're connecting this same idea of trust and deliverance. That Jesus is already battling with. But you can understand the increased agony of it coming from them. In a mocking and a ridiculing way. He did trust in God. He did delight in God or God delight in him. Either way, it is fine in understanding that phrase. They pulled on Old Testament teaching which argues in some places that we trust in God and experience deliverance. But the truth is bigger than that, isn't it? Sometimes there is that trust in God and the deliverance is delayed. And This perverting of truth. And this denial of his claims and this rejection of his authority adds to the internal torment of his mind. The untrained ear and orchestra piece is just ramble jamble. It's just a cacophony of annoying, screeching sounds, often mixed, confused, overlapping, disjointed and shambolic. And that is sometimes the way suffering is perceived in this world by us. We rarely, if ever, can interpret suffering and prosperity accurately. The people at the cross were absolutely wrong in their interpretation of the sufferings of Jesus. He was perfect. He was trusting. He was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. They misunderstood his suffering. And we 
can misinterpret our own suffering and the suffering or prosperity of others. Sometimes we cannot discern any reason for the suffering, no purpose. Other times we cannot understand the prosperity of those who are unbelievers. How does the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Understanding suffering, health, prosperity in our world is mostly beyond us. And here is Christ, the object of the misinterpretation of suffering by his mockers. And thirdly, the experience of his life in verses 9 and 10. The third line of thought which caused frustration for Jesus in his inner suffering is reflection on his own experience. His life. And what a, what a wonderful set of verses this is for parents to lay hold of and, and pray for their children. His life was a life of trust in God. See the two aspects of his trust mentioned here. Verse 9 and 10, from the very beginning. From the womb, at my mother's breast, he has always trusted in God. There was never a day, never a moment, never a month in his whole experience as he looks back over his 33 years that he did not fully, perfectly, completely trust in God. From the womb, at my mother's breast, I trusted in God. It wasn't a faith in a crisis as many people tend to do in suffering, but he always constantly trusted in God. And his argument is, as he reasons within his perfect mind, he's done his part. He's trusted. But God does not appear to be doing his part. Jesus has depended on God, but God has not delivered him. The second point about his trust is, that it was God who gave him the faith. Verse number nine. You made me trust. This heightens the tension and the confusion and the torment in his mind. This trust that I've had in you all my life, it came from you. You gave me this faith, this saving faith, this relying faith, this perfect faith at the very beginning. God creates the dependence, but he doesn't seem to be supplying the corresponding deliverance. He gives the faith, but not the rescue. Jesus is supplying half the apple of trust, but God doesn't seem to be supplying the other half of the apple of deliverance. Perhaps you go to business meetings in your work, and you're conscientious about them. You arrive in time and well prepared. You've consulted the agenda. You've done some research on the points. You're ready for a robust conversation around the table. But others, some of them don't turn up. Others, evidently, are unprepared. You've done your part, but they've not done their part. And here is Christ. I've always trusted. And you made me trust. But what suffering? Amen.
Maybe we have a crisis faith. And I think there's a slice of that in all of us. We all pray more in suffering. When we're being wheeled along the corridor for the operation, when we're sitting in the exam room, when we're being interviewed for a job, when we're lost in the forest on a hike, we have prayed. Perhaps our faith crumbles in a crisis. That we drift from God rather than coming to God in the crisis. We, we're the very opposite. We, we go away from God in the crisis. We turn from him. We question him. What can we do? What could help us there? How could we trust him properly? Well, there's a brilliant thing that Jesus does here. He thinks of a time when he saw the love and deliverance of God in his life. Verse 9. You are he who took me from the womb. Here's all his questions, all his frustrations, all the torments of his heart, all this suffering, all this trust, all this praying, all this sense of the absence of the love of God. But in that moment of darkness, he thinks back to one moment in his experience when he, ever, when he experienced the absolute love of God. You took me from the womb. You were there. You cared for me. You looked after me. When I was an infant, when I was helpless in the first century, the mortality rate was 300 deaths and 1,000 births. But you took me from the womb. You preserved my life. And it helps him here. Brings him again to the, the love of God. Though he can't feel it at this time. We can't see much evidence of it all around him on the cross. His Father in heaven's love is there for him. In our suffering, it will help us also to think of those moments of his grace and love to us. So what an insight then this opening part of Psalm 22 is into the inner sufferings of Jesus, taking us beyond the experience of the deer and of David to the very apex of suffering in the mind and life of Jesus. Let us all believe that he suffered for us and that he is suffering here and then so that we might never suffer. And if you're not yet a Christian, just think of this. Think of this suffering. And ask yourself, if I could earn my way to heaven, if I could be good enough to earn the favor of God, why did he send his son to suffer so much? Put your trust in that Saviour.